good morning. My name is Kevin Johnson. I'm pastor here at Macedonia United Methodist Church. Is it a joy? It is a joy to welcome you all here this morning on Transfiguration Sunday. Um, the Sunday that we don't really know what to do with because it's a weird story and it happens right before Lent every year. So um, we're going to talk about that a little bit in the mix of um, talking about the resurrection of the body this week as we finish our series um, on, on the Apostles' Creed and the Nicene Creed, um, thinking through the whole of it, um, those last two lines, the resurrection of the body and the life of the world to come. I want to invite you to hear the word this morning from 1 Corinthians chapter 15, a passage often that we reserve part of it for Easter. This is Paul's great, um, chapter 15 is, is Paul's great text on the resurrection, and I invite you to hear these words. So if the message that is preached says that Christ has been raised from the dead, then how can some of you say there's no resurrection of the dead? If there's no resurrection of the dead, then Christ hasn't been raised either. If Christ hasn't been raised, then our preaching is useless and your faith is useless. We are found to be false witnesses about God because we testified about God that he raised Christ. When he didn't raise him, if that's the case, that the dead aren't raised. If the dead aren't raised, then Christ hasn't been raised either. If Christ hasn't been raised, then your faith is worthless. You are still in your sins. And what's more, those who have died in Christ are gone forever. If we have a hope in Christ only in this life, then we deserve to be pitied more than anyone else. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. He's the first crop of the harvest of those who died. Since death came through a human being, the resurrection of the dead came through one too. In the same way that everyone dies in Adam, so also everyone will be given life in Christ. Each event will happen in the right order. Christ, the first crop of the harvest, then those who belong to Christ at his coming, and then the end, when Christ hands over the kingdom to God the Father, when he brings every form of rule, every authority and power to an end. It is necessary for him to rule until he puts all enemies under his feet. Death is the last enemy to be brought to an end, since he has brought everything under control under his feet. When it says that everything has been brought under his control, this clearly means everything except for the one who placed everything under his control. But when all things have been brought under his control, when the Son himself will also be under the control of the one who gave him control over everything, so that God may be all in all. This is the word of God for us, the people of God. Thanks be to God. Let us pray. O Lord, let the words of my mouth and the thoughts and meditations of all of our hearts be pleasing in your sight. For you, O Lord, are our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Around his time in the mid-1800s, the philosopher Soren Kierkegaard pulled people on the streets of Copenhagen and Denmark asking, do you believe Jesus was raised? Virtually all said yes, but no one could point to the slightest difference this fact made going about their business as if no resurrection had happened. Friends, one of the greatest challenges for people to overcome in accepting the Christian faith is that of the resurrection. Like Kierkegaard on the streets of Denmark, we might say that we believe that Jesus was raised from the dead. But what difference does it make in our lives? Today, I am not seeking to prove to you that Jesus was raised from the dead. I cannot give you the mechanics of how it worked and therefore prove to you beyond the shadow of a doubt that it happened. But I want you to see how Jesus rising from the dead makes a difference in your life. 
Adam Hamilton says it this way in his book on the creed. He says, what you believe about death changes how you face life. This is true, even if we don't realize it. If we believe that our only hope is in this life, then we, can, then we will pile up as many pleasures and as, ex, and, and as many experiences and we, as we can muster. If we think our death is the end, then we better make sure our bucket lists are complete and that we squeeze every ounce out of life. You only live once, we might say, or the young people would say YOLO, all right? But each week, we say that we believe in the resurrection of the body and the life everlasting. So I ask you this first. Whose body are we talking about? Whose body are we saying that we believe is resurrected? I think we first answer, well, the body of Jesus, obviously. We're told in the Gospels that when the disciples saw Jesus after the resurrection, that he bore resemblance to his original self. Transfiguration Sunday is a unique Sunday to preach about the resurrection. I was going to keep it completely separate from this series, but then I realized that Jesus' transfiguration story shows us some things about the resurrection. I think that on the mountain of transfiguration, we see a preview of what Jesus' resurrected state will be like. After all, on the way down the mountain, Jesus tells Peter, James, and John, don't tell anybody about the vision until the Son of Man is raised from the dead. So he directly references his resurrection, and it has to do with the vision that the disciples have seen. Additionally, on the mountain of transfiguration, the disciples are filled with awe, and they fell to the ground on their faces. And when Jesus goes to them, not shiny and bright anymore, and not with Moses and Elijah anymore, he tells them to get up or rise up, the same word that is used for resurrection all throughout the New Testament. So yes, it is Jesus' body that is resurrected. But Jesus' resurrection also gives us a preview of our resurrection. We aren't just talking about Jesus' body being resurrected. We are talking about our bodies being resurrected. When we say this phrase in the Nicene Creed, we say this, we look for the resurrection of the dead and the life of the world to come. We look for means that it hasn't happened yet. It's anticipation language. It's the only time in the creed when words besides I believe or I confess are used. We look for the resurrection of the dead, in other words, because this is the life that we inherit. It's the one part of the creed that might be a little bit about us. Paul's argument in 1 Corinthians 15 follows a train of logic like this. People are saying there's no resurrection, but Jesus was raised. Then you will be raised. And if Jesus wasn't raised, then there's no hope at all. That's basically what Paul's saying in a nutshell in that passage. And if you're just listening to that passage read out loud, somewhere in there I guarantee you got confused because there's a lot of repetition and he's building argument upon argument like Paul does. Paul makes the resurrection of Jesus the climax of Jesus' life and in fact the Christian faith. Listen to his words again. If Christ hasn't been raised, then your faith is worthless. You are still in your sins, and what's more, those who have died in Christ are gone forever. If we have a hope in Christ only in this life, then we deserve to be pitied more than anyone else. Friends, we often talk about Christmas and Easter as if they are the same scope of holiday. And culturally, we've obviously made a far bigger deal out of Christmas. But Easter is the big one. We should be having massive 
Easter feasts, taking the whole week off after it and celebrating. The church for the first many hundred years hardly celebrated Christmas. They hardly acknowledged it, but they always, always celebrated Easter. We don't have a hope without Easter. The Christian story is only a story at all because of the resurrection. So how does Jesus' resurrection then give us promised resurrection? Paul describes it like this. He says, since death came through a human being, the resurrection of the dead came through one too. In the same way everyone dies in Adam, so also everyone will be given life in Christ. Each event will happen in the right order. Christ, the first crop of the harvest, then those who belong to Christ that is coming, and then the end, when Christ hands over the kingdom to God the Father, when he brings every form of rule, every authority and power to an end. Friends, in a sense, Jesus is the first fruits of the harvest, like the early strawberries that come up in the garden. The rest of us just haven't ripened yet. And Paul says that our resurrection will come when Jesus returns. In Scripture, the final resurrection of the dead is connected to Jesus' return to earth. This is why we look forward to the resurrection of the dead. We are looking for the return of Christ. And this is where a lot of people get hung up. How does resurrection then happen? Do we mean resurrection of real bodies? Don't they decompose? What about bodies that were burnt in an accident? Surely we just mean the resurrection of souls, right? But no, it says resurrection of the body. We don't believe as Christian people that our souls just magically float up to heaven for eternity. Christians don't believe that. Plato believes that. We believe in the resurrection of the body. How does it happen? We want to know all the details because it does not seem scientifically possible. In the creed, however, we've already made some really, really large claims about faith. We have said that we believe in the Father Almighty who created everything. We have said that we believe that God came in human form and was born of a virgin. So why could this same God not raise the dead? Why could the author of life not restore life? Somehow, God must make new bodies for us in the resurrection. Bodies that do not suffer from the same maladies as these bodies. Bodies that are eternal, but also that resemble who we are now. I read one author say that God somehow has our DNA on file. So how could God not make a new body for us? For all things are possible with God. And belief in the resurrection lays claim to this promise. Believing in resurrection thus cannot be a benign statement. We don't believe in resurrection like how we believe that a shade of green paint looks nice on our house. No, this belief has to change something. For the resurrection is the gateway into eternal life. The resurrection of the body and the life everlasting, we say. We have a wonderful promise of hope for when Christ returns. Listen to how Paul says it. It is necessary for him to rule until he puts all enemies under his feet. Death is the last enemy to be brought to an end. Death is defeated. Ultimately, that is what eternal life is about. The human conundrum of death is no longer the enemy. So what is heaven like then? Is it really pearly gates and streets of gold? I don't think a literal interpretation of these few verses that we have in Scripture about heaven is all that helpful. Instead, those passages are trying to describe a picture of something that is better or greater than anything anyone has ever seen. 
And the best part of heaven, of life forever with God, is not the amenity package. It is this, life forever with God. When we believe in the resurrection of dead and the life everlasting, we can participate in glimpses of this life today. This is what church ultimately is. And it's a good reminder. We aren't doing this just as a reminder of how to be a good person. We aren't a God-shaped version of the Rotary or Exchange Club or something else like it. No. We are getting a foretaste of life forever with God. James Howell describes it this way, and it's like when he wrote it in 2005, he would know what our church's mission is. He says, we, we come to the Lord's table and we raise our voices in song and we miss the point if we think this is a nice religious activity. Gathering at the table, singing the hymn, a vague but tantalizing glimpse into eternal life. Out of our isolation, we are called together to share the one thing that matters, the broken body and the shed blood of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. We find our place in Christ's family. Out of our isolation, we are called into Christ's family. And we will remain there forever. And it will be incredible. So why does the resurrection then give hope? First, death is not the end. And secondly, because God is in the business of giving new life. Thus, belief in the resurrection of the body changes the way we live here today. Martyrs for the faith believed in the resurrection of the body and it allowed them to persist. Monks taking vows of poverty and chastity believed in the resurrection of the body, and it allowed them to subsist in life without physical intimacy and without earthly pleasures. The question for us as 21st century Americans is, how does the, resur the resurrection change the way you live? James Howell calls us to practice for eternal life. He says, whatever eternal life is like, we may as well prepare for it right now. In heaven, money means zilch. There are no racial divisions. Love is tender and vocal. Holiness and service are habitual. We are at peace. We practice and we trust, not knowing precisely what our future holds. We trust the God who has devised the future for us that will exceed our grandest fantasies. And whatever that future holds, it will be enough. Because we know who will be there before we get there. Our risen Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Friends, so let's do it. Instead of saying we believe in the resurrection of the body and life everlasting, let's practice it. Let's live as if the money, power, and sex in our world are not the things that control us. Let's live lives that serve others, that seek justice and mercy. Let's live as those who forgive and don't hold grudges. Let's live seeking first God's kingdom. Let's live as those who don't believe that any political party holds the hopes of our lives. Let's live as those who look for the good of others first. We might as well practice it, for we'll be living this way forever. We look for the resurrection of the body and the life of the world to come. Amen.